Okay, we're in a series called A Different Kind of Faith. We're spending the summer looking at how uh, Christianity is different from all the world religions and philosophies. And today, we're going to look at the concept of integrity. Integrity in a world of hypocrisy. And uh, hypocrisy has a very negative connotation to it. I don't mean to use it that way. I mean to use it in the technical sense of how different it is than integrity. And quite honestly, this is one of the places where we, as a church worldwide, uh, struggle, is in this concept of integrity, especially as you listen to the way I define it. So here's a question to start with. Do you think God made his people to uh, flourish? Yeah, I think so, I do too. To flourish. And yet that's something that has, it's like grace. It's very elusive. It's not what we enjoy on Sunday morning that makes us flourishing. Um, I love the way Judy prayed about the whole context culturally in which we find ourselves. If the church is designed to flourish, and if this is God's one of God's primary ways of revealing his kingdom, remember the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if it's primarily communicated through a group that's flourishing, then what's happening in the world is good news because it gives us a chance to shine. It gives us a chance to look different than the world around us. One of the things I love hearing from my students is that uh, you can't tell the difference sometimes between a church and the neighbors next door, and that's a criticism. I actually find that to be very positive because that means the church has had a great influence for a long time. If you want to see what it's like to be a Christian in a world that they don't look like you, come with me to third world countries where I travel. You'll see it. So it's actually something very positive in that statement. But that makes it even more challenging to reflect his love to a world that looks very similar to us. We enjoy the same kinds of things. So if the world is struggling right now, uh, that's from a standpoint of our theology, that's a good thing because we get a chance to stand out. So God, I think, did mean for us to flourish. And uh, I think that flourishment looks, uh, it takes many different forms. I want to talk about one of them briefly and then a second one for the rest of the sermon. Uh, we are a religion of joy. The Bible's filled with language of being joyful of experiencing joy, of demonstrating joy. We're a, we're a religion of joy. And so that joy should be obvious. It should be evident. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. The joy should be present. We should see experience joy both because of what we experience when it looks like blessing and in spite of what we experience when it looks like suffering. Joy should be present. That's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. So we're a religion of joy. And so when the world looks at us as a church, they ought to say, man, there's a joyful group of people. It doesn't matter what's going on. Look at them. They are joyful. I've asked the question more than once. Why on earth would somebody become a Christian in the first 300 years? The cost to becoming a Christian in the first 300 years was tremendous, which we don't face today. 
It was tremendous. Not only would you, the potential to lose your family, you would lose your business and your honor and culture and your value and all the things that were important to you. Because almost every meal and every time they got together was a festival of some kind. It was a celebration to the gods. And so Paul talks a lot about that. Peter does too, about we are not allowed to celebrate that way. We're just not allowed to celebrate that way. And so in the first century, the first 300 years, when when people got together, it was almost always religiously oriented and around the state gods. And the Christians weren't allowed to celebrate. And the cost was tremendous, up to and including their lives, but definitely being ostracized from society. And so that's something that I'm thankful we don't have to deal with today. So what in the world... Why in the world would somebody become a Christian in the first 300 years and has something to do with this concept of a flourishing community? That we are a religion of joy. But also, we're a religion of integrity. You see, this this, uh, concept of integrity is the very concept that describes who God is. He is a God of integrity. I'm going to go back. We actually looked at these verses a few weeks ago in Leviticus um, 19 when we talked about injustices when Hazel Miller was here. What does that look like to be just in a world of injustice? Well, the same passages give us another indication of what integrity looks like. It's Leviticus 19. You notice every week I'm starting in Leviticus, right? Yes, because none of you ever go there. And this is a chance for you to have an introduction to Leviticus in a life-giving way. Look at what he says in Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel. Now remember where we are. We're at the base of Mount Sinai. You're slaves. It's all you are. It's all you're worth. Slaves. You know nothing except how to make bricks. You're pretty good at that making bricks. And you're hearing for the first time what God's heart is on what it means to both be holy and to become priests. Because when he made the covenant, he said, if you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests. So you've been elevated from slaves to priests and you have no idea what that means. And so these laws are explaining it. So this is what the Lord said to Moses, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Peter quotes that in First Peter. This is the reason we are to live out our faith, to be holy. It doesn't say to become holy. It says to be holy, to live out what we already know to be true because of our faith in the Lord. And then if you go down to verse 9, he gives a series of little uh, rules and laws here, which are very interesting to me. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You belong to me. I belong to you. This is a statement of personal God, which they had never seen in the ancient world. The gods were never personal. So the first thing he addresses is the poor. And by the way, that's not uncommon. That's often where he starts. That should be one of the marks of the church is to care for the poor. But then he goes on. Talks about community. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't profane the name of your God. See how personal it is? Not a God. Your God. 
You are mine, God says, and I am yours. Then he goes from there and he says, talks about fair pay. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse. Okay. Now he's going to talk about what we call today those who have challenges. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear the Lord your God. There's that personal aspect again. I am the Lord. Then he goes on and talks about what justice is. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And then he talks about your neighbor. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Okay. There's nothing unique about these laws. These laws were found in many of the ancient law codes. Nations all had these kinds of statements. Okay? Nothing unique. So what makes it unique among God's people is the very last line, which I haven't read to you yet. Very last line. So here's that last verse. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, that's what distinguishes the people of God back then from all the surrounding nations. Love your neighbor as yourself. So just like the first verse Peter quoted, this verse Jesus quoted and says this is the second greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Came right here out of this passage. Right here. That is what is unique. That's what's different. That's what makes these laws magical, supernatural, spectacular. This is what makes Israel stand out from the ancient world. And as we're going to see in just a minute, same as for the church. Anyone can follow the rules. Anyone. But it's almost impossible to do it with love. Almost impossible. Here's why. Communication specialists tell us that about 10 to 12% of our communication is verbal. The rest is nonverbal. Here's what that means in real life. You can't pretend to love somebody. You either do or you don't. And if you do love them, it's going to be seen. And if you don't love them, it's going to be seen. All of you know people that are nice to you, but you know what they, they don't really think that highly of you. And so the very heart of Christianity is the transformation in here that says, I really am going to love my enemy. The worst person that I can come across, I actually am going to develop love. That takes the Holy Spirit. You can't pretend. I can't tell you the countless times somebody says something disparaging about somebody else and I say, ooh, you know, ooh, that's pretty sharp. Oh, yeah, but I never tell them that. Yes, you do. Every time you talk to them, you do. We're not stupid people. 
We are designed by God to intuit what's actually in here, not what comes out of here. That's what makes it almost impossible. Okay? By now you're hopefully starting to get a glimpse of where I'm going with integrity. Is that you have to decide in here that you love the worst person in the world. That you actually love them. Because they're lovable. Because they have dignity. Oh, they could be complete scoundrels. I get that. Okay? But they have dignity because they're made in the image of God. You can't pretend. By the way, this is the most challenging thing in building a healthy church. It's a very technical concept between the word practice and the word praxis. Practice is a series of behaviors. We can create a food bank and a government institution can create a food bank. We're the same. We have the same behaviors. We do the same sorts of things. But the technical word, praxis, it's a good Greek term, is when the very behavior embodies the heart. And that's where we can excel. It's not the same. Two people can give out food to the same person, but somebody who has generated internally that genuine love, that authentic love, that's called praxis. It's called praxis. As you all know, I teach in a doctoral program at Denver Seminary, so I have students every year coming to classes a year, young pastors, and uh, they all have churches that are full of practices. They do lots of good things. But to get a church to move to the deeper level of praxis is one of the, that's the most challenging thing in building a healthy church. So my students have asked me many times over the years, what does it take to do that? I said 5,000 coffees. All the preaching I'm doing up here today is going to change most of you. I know that. Unless you want to be changed and the Holy Spirit jumps in, it's not going to happen. All the preaching in the world isn't going to change the culture of a church. It's sitting across a coffee cup, looking you in the eyes and saying, why are you complaining? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, sure. Then why are you frightened over the looting? Why? Do we really believe Paul when he says twice how, that's how important it is? There is no authority in the world except that was established by God. Now why do we criticize the president? It doesn't matter which office they, which party they come from. Why? We all know the passage that says do, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Then why do we complain? Why? We all know very well the Christian theology of marriage and how God hates divorce. But why do we divorce? Why? You see how challenging it is to actually put in here what we know to be true up here. And that is what integrity is all about. Moving it from here to here. It's called integrity. And the only way to get there, to help one another, is to sit with each other and say, why are you frightened? 
Several of the marriages in our church are in a quarantine. I've said to them, don't pull the trigger on divorce. Not yet. Hang in there. Let's get you some help. Don't do that. Do we really believe our theology that we talk about, what comes out? Do we really believe it? We are designed by God to intuit the difference. So that's the question you have to wrestle with. You see, all of us have two theologies. Every one of us. We have our stated or confessional theology, and then we have our actual or functional theology. So our stated theology is what we say to be true, and our functional theology is the way we actually live our lives. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I'm really angry and frustrated over what's happening with all the protests. I believe that there is no authority except what God establishes, <clears throat> but I'm very nervous about who might take office coming in November. I believe that I shouldn't be a complainer, but I actually complain a lot. You see what I mean? This is why integrity is perhaps one of the biggest challenges the church faces today. Because we have people that show up to church. They love to worship. They love the music. I love the music. Thanks, guys, for that. I love it. Something that feels really stirring in the soul about that. I love the people that a minute ago were up there on the balconies watching I love that. There's something that feels good, a stirring of the soul when we come together. But then somehow, when we cross these white lines and we leave, it's gone. And we go right back to where we were. Right back to where we were. You've heard me say many times, if your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed. My marriage has been in trouble. Has been in trouble. Come get help. If you struggle with lying, don't be ashamed. Don't leave it there. Come get help. If you struggle with complaining, don't leave it there. If you struggle with greed, don't leave it there. Wherever you are, don't leave it there. Learn how to actually do the hard work to take it from practice to praxis, where the heart gets shaped along with the brain. Because integrity is where we take this, this conf confessional theology, here's what I say I believe, and our functional theology, here's the way I live life, and we bring them together. The closer they are together, that is a flourishing community. That's a happy community. If we say, for instance, that we are a church that's concerned about our marriages, and then you come to me and say, I'm getting a divorce, and I say, you sinner, you can't do that. Okay, I just separated them. Where's the grace? Where does that come? If we're actually concerned about our marriages, then come tell me if your marriage is struggling. Come to any of our elders. They are really good people. Our men and women who are elders, they have been around the block and they have watched the Lord work. You can trust any of them. You can trust any of our staff. The closer these come together, the more flourishing we are and the happier we are. The further apart they are, 
the more unhappy, frightened, unsure, insecure, struggling in our marriage we become. To move this way is the hardest thing to do in the Christian walk. That's what integrity is. Integrity is not what you do with your bank account. That's just an expression of it. Integrity is not whether you show up on Sunday morning or not. That's just an expression of it. Genuine integrity is when we take what we know to be true and we look at the way we actually live our lives and we bring them together. That's the biblical concept of integrity. Right there. Now you all hate me, don't you? It's the hardest thing to do. There's nobody here that that has perfect integrity. Absolutely not. And so the passage that Judy read, love must be sincere. It has to be authentic or it is not love. You can't pretend to love someone, but inside hate them. You can't do that. In fact, Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 23 with the Pharisees. It's a fascinating passage of what integrity or lack of integrity looks like. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And then he sums it up with a really memorable way. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy. Love has to be sincere. Because we are created by God to intuit the difference. All of you know when you're with people that are authentic and sincere and just simply love you and those who don't. For whatever reason, they don't accept you. Maybe you don't look as good as them. Maybe you don't have the same status. Maybe you're not in the same economic class. Who knows? You fill it in, but you're aware. You intuitively are aware when that's there. That boundary, that that hypocrisy is present. Just like you know when you're with somebody that genuinely loves you, you feel loved. You see, in order for love to be sincere, people have to see it and experience it. Both. It can only be what we say. That's why I've asked our staff and elders throughout the years, uh, what do you guys think? Do you think our, do you think our community loves us? And all of us, all of the elders and staff, somehow are connected outside the church. And so it's great to listen to them. What are people saying about our church? Are we a loving church? Are we a church that actually enjoys being together? Are we a church that is attractive? Are we attractive to those people right up there? You've heard me put these questions out there. If we shut the doors tomorrow... Close the church down. Would those people, would they be glad? Would they be sad? Would they even notice? That's a statement of how authentic we are. 
the answer to that question. Does that make sense? You understand what integrity is? It's when we bring what we say we believe in line with the way we live our lives. So we don't say we love people when we don't. We love people all the time, depending on who they are. Peter goes on. He's going to read you another verse here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and with all of these Sundays, just like normal, I'm talking now to the church. Nobody can do it perfectly. It's like there's no elder that can meet the criteria in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You'd be Jesus. <laughs> no elder can meet it. But when our church looks at our group of elders, do they see these, these character qualities coming out in us as a group? The same thing is here, true here. Yeah, every one of us struggles with hypocrisy someplace in life. Get used to it. Okay, don't be satisfied with it. Just get used to it. It's part of who we are. But when they look at the church as a whole, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. Yourselves, this is plural, he's talking to all of us. Rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual work, uh, milk, so that you may uh, grow up in your salvation by this spiritual milk. Now that you have tasted here it is. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. How many of you have tasted that the Lord is good? Let me see. Good, I hope it's all of you. You've had some example where the Lord tasted so good that's drawing you further. This is the answer, by the way, to why in the world would people in the first three centuries turn to Christ? They've tasted that the Lord is good. And he tastes much better than what they're going to get in culture. But then he goes on. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, all of you, plural, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And a little bit later on in the same chapter, he says, You are a chosen people so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life, light. You see, we're not, we're not playing games. This is not something that's just we're joking about here. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is the very heart and soul of who we are as a people, as a church. When we have authenticity, sincerity, integrity, where those come together then we are priests, which is what God promised Israel in Exodus 19. If you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests. They just were going to go from slaves to priests. That's us. But you can't be a priest by lying and cheating on each other and hurting each other. You can't do that, complaining all the time. We become priests as these two come together. What we say we believe and the way we live our lives. As they move together, then we become true priests. Priests on behalf of whom? A priest is never a priest on their own behalf. The moment I say you're a priest, you should look around and say, who am I a priest on behalf of? All those people right there. That's who. That's what integrity looks like.
It's what integrity feels like. So how does this, remember we're using the picture, a different kind of faith. God reaches down with an open hand, which none of the ancient gods did, and he offers us something, and then at the same time, he invites us into something. And what he's inviting us into is that, that, that space where we live with him, where we experience what we were, we were created to experience. In this case, it's integrity. But not only is he offering it, whatever he offers it is to be extended out to the rest of the world. That's why Jesus can pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why Paul can pr- proclaim to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He uses us. He uses us. So integrity is something we hand out as a gift to someone else. And they intuitively know it's different than what they've experienced. They intuitively know it. And that becomes very attractive. So I'll leave you with this before we go to communion. Where's an area where you are wide apart? Are you a complainer? You say you shouldn't complain, but you do complain. Is that you? Are you greedy where you say, you know, we shouldn't be greedy. We should be generous. But I'm actually over here and I am greedy. Is your marriage struggling because you're not willing to sacrifice for your spouse? You say it's true, but over here you don't. You fill in the blank. Wherever that's far apart, that's what generates unhappiness and fear. Do you, see, do you say you believe in the sovereignty of God, but you're nervous and upset and angry and frightened over what's happened in our country? This is a great time just to pause and repent of that. So I'm going to give you just a few seconds just to stop and say, whatever that is, lift it up to the Lord. And say, I don't feel comfortable being this far apart. I want to bring it closer together so life matches belief. So take just a moment and lift that up to the Lord. Father, we know you to be a good God. And most exciting of all for us, your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for already forgetting what happened yesterday. Thank you for every morning when I wake up, I have a clean slate and I get to start again. And your mercies and your grace are new and fresh. Thank you for that. Help us to continue as a church. It's a slow process, but help us to steadily become more and more people of integrity where we live out our faith in very genuine, sincere, and authentic ways so that our county can see. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.